from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. This is a special report. Assassins Incorporated, the Kremlin's secret squad of killers. Epilogue. In our series, we've examined assassinations that have most likely been conducted by the Kremlin. We've looked at its willingness and its capabilities. In this program, will they do it in America? You target somebody from another country, you are at risk of irreparably damaging your relationship with that country. It's a very different thing. Ambassador Jonathan Weiner, who figures prominently in the story, says it would be a bad move for the Kremlin. But others think it still could happen. The possible evidence was mentioned in a book by Pete Early called Comrade J. It was the story of Sergei Trechikov, a former KGB top official who defected to the U.S. He died in 2010, but something he said in Early's book left a clue and a hint referenced by Paul Joyal, who saw something in that book that led him to believe it could definitely happen in the U.S. And he talked about the meeting with uh, Zolotov at uh, Tatiana's uh, restaurant in in Brighton Beach. The man he's referring to is Viktor Zolotov, Vladimir Putin's personal bodyguard. Which was a discussion about a number of people that they needed to kill, and, and the comment was made at that lunch table that uh, there's even too many for us to kill. So would it actually happen here in the homeland? Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. In today's battle space, situations change rapidly. That's why Northrop Grumman's innovative C4 ISR technology offers unprecedented mission capability. That's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Our series, Assassins Incorporated, the Kremlin's secret squad of killers, has featured four episodes showcasing the stories of people who were either murdered or were victims of attempted murders, all of which were allegedly connected to the Kremlin. The objective was to take a closer look at what appears to be a network of people and organizations that are active in locations from Central Asia to Washington and many major cities in between and beyond. Why investigate this? Our research and that of many other journalists points out these attacks seem to be aligned with a much more aggressive and bold Russian government. Another reason is that Western governments, including that of the U.S., have seemed to be timid about investigating on their own. So in this final segment, we hope to answer the question, how far will the Kremlin go? 
The cases of Paul Joyal and Alexander Litvinenko gave us a good idea of the skill sets and their abilities. But also, the case of Arkady Bobchenko shone a bright light onto just how far these assassins might go. Several teams of people planning to kill Bobchenko had help. Training in Russia. And they had a lot of weapons. They have uncovered a few weapons depots, serious weaponry, including grenade launchers. Bobchenko is safe for now, but he says because of the nature of this organization, others are not. All these arrests and discoveries were made in Ukraine. The point is that those who are on the top of this network, they are hiding in Russia. And of course, they are being beyond the reach of the Ukrainians. I'm sure that uh, both assassinations and other attempts to destabilize uh, the situation in Ukraine uh, will continue. It is now clear that Mr. Skripal and his daughter were poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent of a type developed by Russia. This is part of a group of nerve agents known as Novichok. But while Ukraine remains ground zero for Kremlin hit squads, Western Europe, Britain in particular, is in the bullseye, according to British Prime Minister Theresa May. The government has concluded that it is highly likely that Russia was responsible for the act against Sergei and Yulia Skripal. One man in London knows all too well about the Kremlin's persistence. Now, the Russians are doing everything that they can to try to kill me, to try to stop me, to try to intimidate me. There are probably 250 people working full-time inside the Russian government at any given moment trying to destroy my life. American-born British citizen Bill Browder, who's responsible for the Magnitsky Act, which severely punishes the Russian government for corruption and the murders carried out by Kremlin hit squads, has been relentlessly pursued, and the people chasing him have gotten very creative. On the 30th of May, um, I'm in my hotel room in Madrid, and at, at about 9.40 in the morning, there's a knock on my door. I open the door, and the general manager of the hotel is standing there with two uniformed police officers. And I, uh, they ask me for my identification. I show them my ID. They compare it with a piece of paper they have, and then they say, Mr. Browder, you're under arrest. And I said, what for? And they said, Interpol, Russia. This was the sixth time Russia had tried to use a bogus Interpol red notice to take Browder into custody. And when they did get a hold of him, they didn't take him to a police station. And so my heart was beating hard. We were driving through the streets of old Madrid in what looked like a police car. and They had, they had the sirens on. Then they abruptly stopped the car. And, and they told me to get out of the car. His heart started to race as they demanded a medical exam. And these guys didn't speak English very well, and I said, no medical exam. And I said, I want to speak to my lawyer. They said, no lawyer. This was a critical moment for Browder, and if it hadn't been for his quick thinking, who knows where he would have ended up. When I was in the back of the police car, they still hadn't taken away my phone. I actually took a picture and tweeted that out. From Browder's point of view, that may have saved his life. And then shortly after that, my lawyer called me up. And his captors did not like that. And, and that, that's when they learned that I still had my phone. They pulled over the car. They then patted me down, took my phone away. Then they got back in and started driving again, arriving at a place that he didn't recognize. And, and it wasn't in front of a police station. And, and they told me to get out of the car. And I was very confused. And they said, medical exam. They 
these guys didn't speak English very well. And I said, no medical exam. And I said, I want to speak to my lawyer. They said, no lawyer. And we had this standoff. And I was thinking to myself, I'm, there's no way I'm going to go into that building with these guys who claim they're cops for a, quote, medical exam. Because next thing I know, I'm injected with something and I'm, I wake up on a, in a floor of a cell in Moscow. For whatever reason, the people who had taken him into custody changed their minds and took him to a legitimate police station. And finally, when we come to the real police station, that's when I calmed down. Strange men came to the door of his hotel, took him away on a fake Interpol red notice, convincing him they were a Russian hit squad after him because of all the work he's done in Washington to punish Moscow for corruption and killing. Ironically, another man in another hotel room in Washington didn't fare as well. That's the voice of Mikhail Lesson, a former close advisor to President Vladimir Putin in Russia. He was also the co-founder of Russia Today, Russia's answer to the BBC and CNN. Notorious for his heavy drinking, he was found dead in his hotel room in DuPont Circle, November 5, 2015. The chief medical examiner of the District of Columbia initially said his manner of death was undetermined, but then it was changed to accident with acute ethanol intoxication as a contributory cause of death. The other contributing factor? Blunt force trauma. Injuries to the neck, torso, upper extremities, lower extremities, which were, according to the report, induced by falling. We went to investigate the scene where it took place and took along with us Robert Bayer, former CIA covert operative with deep experience in all things Russia. And it didn't add up for him. In, in life, I mean, you can fall down and hit your head and die, but uh -huh. it seems more complicated than that because everything that I've heard about is that he had multiple injuries all over his body. It doesn't fit any experience I've had of hard drinking and people who have died of it. We've continued to ask questions about Lesson's death, but have gotten no answers. We contacted the FBI. They referred us to the Metropolitan Police. We contacted the Justice Department. They also referred us to the Metropolitan Police. The Metropolitan Police referred us to the U.S. Attorney's Office. The U.S. Attorney's Office said their statement still stands, which is he died of acute alcohol poisoning with blunt force trauma. The bottom line for Robert Bayer and many other current and former intelligence and law enforcement officers. The death is suspicious and on the face of it, it links right back to Moscow, which leads Bayer to say, Clearly, there are no barriers that Vladimir Putin has in front of him that would stop him from committing an assassination in the United States. But while many people think the Kremlin's Hit squads are just a bunch of modern-day cowboys capable of murder at any time and anywhere. There are those who believe there are limits and constraints on them, and more precisely, limits and constraints on who they can kill. It's different if you murder people of other nationalities. It's a different business. Ambassador Jonathan Weiner, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Law Enforcement, in the Clinton administration. He says the rule is hard and fast when it comes to Kremlin assassinations. When they murder other Russians, they're sending a signal to every Russian everywhere in the world that if you cross the Russian government, your life is worth nothing. Anything can happen to you. So it sends a signal to people, don't you dare consider spying for the Americans. Don't you dare consider cooperating with the Americans, or the French, or the British, 
or the Chinese or anybody else, we have our eye on you and you are at risk. So it's a signal that I think gets heard loudly, and that's why they target Russians. By contrast, you target somebody from another country, you are at risk of irreparably damaging your relationship with that country. It's a very different thing. And so we have seen the Russians do the former. We have not seen the Russians really do the latter. Well, this is, the, this is where I want to go with this question. What about the case of Paul Joyal? Because that case has never been solved. Uh, initially, police thought it was a, a robbery gone bad, but no wallet was taken, no briefcase, no computer, no car taken. Um, and as he pointed out, the two assailants were waiting for him in the rain, you know, hiding in the bushes. Is that a robbery? What does Paul think? What is Paul's conclusion? That's my point. He says it. it's not a robbery. It was, he believes that he was... It was an assassination attempt. He had just left this, the spy museum having drinks with Oleg Kalugin, uh, whom you know um, and know what he was doing. And, you know, he defected to the U.S. And yes. the first thing he did while he was laying there on the pavement, you know, very close to possibly dying, was have his wife call Oleg Kalugin and say, hey, um, this happened to me. Watch out. Um, and two other people on that same Dateline NBC program that he said Vladimir Putin was uh, the person who ordered the killing of his friend, Alexander Litvinenko, two other people on that program ended up dead. Now, Daniel McGrory, a reporter for the London Times, supposedly died of a heart attack four days or eight days before Paul was shot. And it was deemed uh, natural. After Sergei Skripal and his daughter were poisoned, the British intelligence, I understand, have come back and are taking a second look at this. So do you, you still believe that they would not go after an American? I think as a matter of policy, uh, they should not go after anybody, period, mm -hmm. whether they're Russian or non-Russian. Assassinations are uh, terrible, horrible, dangerous things to do. And once you get in that business wherever you're doing it to, and try and decide to do it reciprocally. So everybody is at risk once people get into the business of assassinations. But I think that the implications are different for Russia. If they're assassinating Russians, where they can, it, it, it serves to chill and intimidate all Russians everywhere, and starting to assassinate people who aren't Russians. Now, if we assume, for the sake of our discussion today, that they are assassinating Russians to intimidate them, and that they're not generally killing non-Russians, um, that would make sense as a policy, because it's hard for the Russians to get organized to go and try and kill Russian government officials. That's going to be hard. So the kickback is limited. If you start killing nationals of other countries and you get caught, the kickback is absolutely ferocious and potentially uncontainable. So it's an incredibly dangerous business to be in. Now, does that mean the Russians never do it? I can't say that. You have to look at facts on particular cases. I have not looked at the police files 
intelligence files or any other files about what happened to Paul Joyle. I don't know. But there is a principled policy difference to make between killing others and killing your own uh, people in your own country. So as tyrannical as it is to permit as a government policy assassinations, if Kremlin assassins are indeed limited in whom they can kill as a matter of government policy, then one thing is clear, they are not restrained in where they can do it. The GRU, the GRU, the main intelligence director of the general staff, and the SVR, the Foreign Intelligence Service, um, are all active in the United Kingdom. So individuals with links to two of these intelligence agencies, which is to say the FB and the, and the GRU, have murdered individuals on UK soil over the last 12 years. And we'll examine that, and by extension, what it means for the US when we continue on Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman's innovative C4 ISR technology offers unprecedented mission capability, enabling faster, more assured decisions. That's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. This is a Target USA moment, episode 40. For Grace Joe's family, 1998 was the last straw. My grandmother, my bro- younger brothers, um, they all passed away because of starvation. For six-year-old Grace and her younger brother, the food situation was extremely dire. My younger brother and I was were almost like uh, 10 days starved straight. Uh, we only drank uh, cold water and uh, there's no meal we can find. The public farms, um, we cannot find any small potatoes from the farm because other people, they already like found them. And um, the winter time, we can find like wood to burn and keep house warm. We don't have any food, we don't have any money, and there's no way we can make money either. They had to find a way out of North Korea. We uh, walked a lot, and uh, we crossed the river by swimming, and uh, we also climbed the mountain. This has been a Target USA moment, episode 40. Download it, relive it. I'm JJ Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. This is the epilogue of our series, Assassins Incorporated, the Kremlin's secret squad of killers. And I felt it was important, in addition to analyzing what we've learned so far, to tackle two questions. One, would Russia sanction the assassinations of people who are not Russians? And two, would they sanction those assassinations or any assassinations outside of Russia? Even though they've denied it, we've got pretty clear evidence that they have killed people on foreign soil. In a new report from the Henry Jackson Society think tank in London, titled Putin Sees and Hears It All, How Russia's Intelligence Agencies Menace the UK, Dr. Andrew Foxhall, who authored the report, tells Target USA Russia's killing squads are clearly practicing their trade in Britain. 
one of the main findings is that um, is that Russia's three main intelligence and security agencies, which is say the FSB, the Federal Security Service, the GRU, the GRU, the main intelligence director of the general staff, and the SVR, the Foreign Intelligence Service, um, are all active in the United Kingdom, to a certain extent as, as one might expect. Individuals, so the second point is that individuals with links to two of these intelligence agencies, which is to say the FSB and the, and the GRU, have murdered individuals on UK soil over the last 12 years. What we're beginning to get a picture of here is that these so-called assassins are not just a self-standing venture. They're at the very least a loosely connected, cut-out operation run by Russian intelligence with spies as handlers. Individuals with links to the FSB were um, responsible, or believed to have been responsible for the murder of Alexander Litvinenko in 2006, and then, of course, earlier this year, um, two serving GRU uh, officers carried out the attempted assassination of Sergei and Yulia Skripal, but, of course, um, in March, but of course in July, uh, were responsible ultimately for the for the death of Dawn Sturgis, a, a, a UK citizen. And according to Dr. Foxhall, who makes a very logical point, deliberately or not, the assassins do assassinations. But being connected to the intelligence community of Russia means that clearly they're not running operations. They're simply doing what they're supposed to do. That suggests someone else is calling the shots. As well as assassinations, there's an awful lot of activity that goes on sort of beneath the threshold of what we might call wet work. And all of that activity is what we would broadly think of or, or is being associated with um, with active measures, which is to say that subversive um, political warfare originally employed by the KGB during the Cold War. And that, of course, includes espionage. Now, speaking with um, former and, and current um, intelligence sources in the UK, there's an there's a acknowledgement now that Russia has more case officers in the UK than it did during the Cold War, and probably more so than it did even a decade ago. The, the figure that, that I was told was as, as many as 200 case officers handling upwards, uh, handling upwards of 500 um, agents. And now, uh, of course, on top of those agents, there are any number of informants that these people would, would, would reach out to and, uh, and mm-hmm. use. And this upward trajectory in the use of spies by Russia is not relegated to just the UK. There has been a significant increase in the United States. I've spoken about this over the years a number of times with different people associated with the U.S. intelligence community, but most recently with John Seifer, who's a retired CIA officer who worked for a good amount of time in the Russia House at the Central Intelligence Agency. And here's a part of a very interesting conversation that we had not too long ago. One person that I was very familiar with who's passed away, who was a a Russian defector to the U.S. told me years ago that there were more Russian spies in the U.S. And this was during the 2010 time frame, um, 2007, I should say, to 2010 time frame that we're talking, he and I, um, they had more uh, spies here in the U.S. than than they had ever had in the past. Do you agree with that? And what role do you think they played, if you agree? If not, then explain. I absolutely agree with it. Uh, I was very heavily involved in the arrest of, of Robert Hansen, the FBI special agent, uh, and had been involved. I had served in Moscow when 
Elder James was arrested. So I've been involved in several of these tit-for-tat expulsions of diplomats and spies. Um, so the Russians, you know, this is an open society, and the people who are meant to defend in the counterintelligence realm against Russian spies and Chinese spies and others are the FBI. And the FBI are, are talented and very good at what they do, but they just don't have the resources to cover large amounts of spies in the United States, especially when they're focused on, on terrorism and making sure they run down every terrorist lead. So it's in the Russians' advantage to try to flood the zone and have as many people here as they can to collect information and understand the United States and have people in key places, which I'm sure helped them quite a bit in 2016. So one of the things we've seen recently as we've, we've thrown out some diplomats and spies and they've done the same to us, for those of us in the, in, in the professional side, that's often very hard to see because they, they have somewhere on the order of 175 to 225 something spies in the United States. The United States has a handful, maybe a couple dozen or, you know, in Russia. So when, they, when we throw out 50, that means they're going to throw out 50 in ours and we're going to end up with small right. numbers and they're going to still have a quite a large number. So is that 200 and some number uh, just a, a hypothetical number you're throwing out or is that uh, closer to the truth? It's closer to the truth. Um, the Russians had a large presence here d- during the Cold War, but the FBI you know, understood during the Cold War that our main adversary was the Soviet Union and put a lot of resources on them. Uh, my understanding from talking to professionals and friends and others in the FBI is that, is that those numbers have grown over time. And so I certainly don't, ha- you know, I don't go in and ask specific things since I've retired, that would be wrong, but, but let's say the numbers are in the, in the hundreds, at least 150 or more. So as we wrestle with the question of whether the Kremlin would actually attempt to assassinate someone in the U.S., and specifically an American, Paul Joyal, who believes he was a victim of one such assassination attempt, says that he read something from a deceased former Russian spy who actually defected to the U.S. His name was Sergei Trechikov that led him to believe they would. Especially when... I read his book, Comrade J, and he talked about the meeting with uh, Zolotov at, at uh, Tatiana's uh, restaurant in, in Brighton Beach, in which there was a discussion about a number of people that they needed to kill, and, and a comment was made at that lunch table that uh, there's even too many for us to kill. Zolotov is uh, is... Putin's personal bodyguard, and he's been with him since St. Petersburg when he he and uh, Sepov owned um, a company called the Baltic Escorts, which was a security company and provided security for Putin when he was deputy mayor. Sepov died under, by the way, also serious circumstances that some say may have been the first use of polonium. Um, but Zolotov followed um, Putin to the Kremlin. He was his chief bodyguard, then he was head of the bodyguard's directorate, then he was head of the paramilitary arm of the uh, interior ministry. Now he is in charge of the National Guard, which takes the action arms of various departments, including the interior ministry, and now they have a, a force of over 400,000, which are trained at uh, uh, anti-demonstration tactics, et cetera. But they're the Praetorian Guard of, of the Kremlin. 
Zolotov is the man who Putin knows will do everything and anything for him to keep him in power. And that brings us back to our original question. How far would the Kremlin go to silence the critics of Vladimir Putin and, in effect, assassinate an American? This question received renewed interest a bit earlier in 2018. Back in July of 2018, when President Putin met with U.S. President Donald Trump in Helsinki, something came up that raised the eyebrows of a number of Americans, investigators and experts watching the situation. It was a request by Mr. Putin for the U.S. to cooperate with Russians on issues of investigative importance to them in exchange for their cooperation with the U.S. on its Russia interference investigation. In the process, a list of people came up that Putin would like to have Russian investigators sit down and talk with. There were about 11 of them. One of them, Jonathan Weiner. The United States had already indicted uh, a, a number of Russians for their involvement in interfering in the American elections of 2016, mm -hmm. intruding, interfering, um, and abusing our system in violation of our laws. Yeah. This is an effort to create the equivalent, same kinds of numbers, so the people on Russia's list were people they could interview and then use as the basis of those interviews, indict. Mm -hmm. So I'm confident the purpose of it was to see if they could get the United States government to play along with an entirely abusive, non-rule of law, dictated indictment of uh, the people responsible for Magnitsky Act, uh, anybody who had gotten uh, in their crosshairs. They then indict them all as co-conspirators for violating some Russian laws. And then you have the basis for saying the United States government will release your guys from the indictment mm -hmm. when you release ours. Mm -hmm. That's what I but, believe but was couldn't... going on. It was to create a false equivalence between people exercising their First Amendment rights who had done nothing illegal or improper, mm -hmm. and people who are part of a criminal conspiracy against the American political system, the American people, the American government, American elections. There is a widespread belief that the people on that list were not actually wanted for questioning, but for elimination. Why? Weiner is one of the people that was responsible for the creation and the crafting of the Magnitsky Act. It punishes Russia, Vladimir Putin's inner circle, and the Kremlin in general for its corrupt and murderous behavior. It grew out of the killing of Sergei Magnitsky. Today, as we're preparing this program, is November 16, 2018, nine years after Sergei Magnitsky was killed in a Moscow prison in a brutal and inhumane way. As a result of that, Bill Browder, his boss, whom you've heard earlier in this program, say the Russian government has 250 or more people every day working in some way to kill him, set out to get justice for him. And Jonathan Weiner played a key role in that process. That's one of the key reasons why Putin might want Jonathan Weiner to be questioned by his Kremlin investigators. But there's another one as well, something that has to do with the 2016 presidential election meddling process and how the U.S. found out about it. After having gotten the Magnitsky Act passed, he credited me with coming up 
with the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I also done other work for Bill Browder, and then in addition, I have a friendship with Christopher Steele, uh, the uh, the British former spy from Orbis. From Orbis, who came up with the um, the information that Russia had uh, engaged in a, an assault on American democracy. Mm-hmm by trying to get uh, Donald Trump elected president and uh, working with members of the Trump campaign. Mm-hmm. And that's what, what was in the, the dossier. And when I was at the State Department, I learned of this from Mr. Steele, who I'd worked with uh, for years, and passed that on to um, senior officials at the State Department because I felt it was important that the government know about it if a foreign adversary was trying to interfere with our elections. Okay. So, given my relationship with Steele on the one hand, and my relationship with Browder on the other hand, it made me kind of a twofer uh, for Vladimir Putin. I used to work Russian issues a lot when yeah. I was in the government. Yeah. I'd been to Russia many times, worked with a lot of Russians, and he could learn a lot, I suppose, from talking to me. Despite the deep base of knowledge that Jonathan Weiner has about the Kremlin's capabilities and activities when it comes to assassinations and attempted assassinations around the world, he seems to remain convinced they wouldn't dare touch him. And there's one simple reason why. If Russia was to engage in targeting Americans and killing or disabling, wounding Americans due to uh, any official act, any official direction of the Russian government, even if masked, I am confident the United States government would find ways to retaliate. There are multiple theaters to war these days. And that's it for our series, Assassins Incorporated, the Kremlin's secret squad of killers. We thank you for listening to this program and the entire series of programs dealing with this topic. We will periodically examine it in the short and the long term. But coming up on our next episode, a topic not too far away from this one. Those individuals in London who Russia's intelligence and security agencies are interested in described an increasing belief that Russia um, is monitoring their activities, um, who they speak with, where they go, and so on and so forth. And Dr. Andrew Foxhall with the Henry Jackson Society says these individuals are not only being followed. A small number of people with whom I spoke um, described having received overt threats, including including death threats, um, over recent months. That's coming up on our next episode. I want to thank you again profusely for letting us into your ear, for listening to the Target USA podcast and for helping us continue to inform you and the rest of the world about the issues, events, people, and places that make up the matrix of threats to the U.S. If you have questions about the program, or a comment, or a tip, let me know about it. You can reach me at the letter J, the color green. That's one word, jgreen, at wtop.com. That's jgreen at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. jgreen at wtop.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at natsec09. That's November, Alpha, Tango, Sierra, Echo, Tango, and the number 09. 
And I encourage you to follow Target USA on Twitter as well at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. That's T-U-S-A Podcast on Twitter. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity, and we'll see you next time. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. In today's battle space, situations change rapidly. That's why Northrop Grumman's innovative C-4 ISR technology offers unprecedented mission capability. That's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.